Yeah, and look, I, I'll try to avoid the names. The sta- the sta- <laughs> well, no, not not just names, but I'll I'll give you a I'll give you a couple specific examples. But I'll try to avoid the ones that tend to be dissatisfying to listeners. Like if I tell you that Amazon is great at innovation and they embody a lot of the principles, everyone's going to go, okay, yeah, okay, Amazon, thanks for that. But they they do because they have a relentless pursuit of delighting the customer and they put the customer at the center of everything they do. And they think, how could we make that customer's life a little bit better? Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Stephen Goldback. Chief Strategy Officer at Deloitte, author of Detonate, author, co-author of Provoke, which is in bookstores now. If you didn't hear about the book, go back and listen to part one of this. So, Stephen, one of the questions I had is, you know, before we started, we were playing the Canadian name game and uh, talking about you growing up in outside of Toronto and me out in Alberta and uh, and some of the advantages of Canadian healthcare system, which some of my American friends don't appreciate. <laughs> But I want to ask you a different question. As a Canadian in the States, and like, I'm a, I'm a technically an American born abroad, but I'm, you know, I was born there, the Canadians gave me a birth certificate too, right? So I'm a dually. I'm interested in any thoughts that you have of advantages of the States. Like, what do you like about the States being down here? Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I do think there is a pressure to, there is a strong desire, the strong desire for individual freedoms and the pursuit of happiness. An old friend called attention to the differences between the Canadian, the equivalent of the Canadian constitution and the American constitution. So that the Canadian pursuits are peace, order, and good government is in Canada. And it's, you know, the pursuit of the pursuit of happiness, liberty, freedom, the pursuit of happiness. It's a very different foundation from one country to the next. And I do think the the notion of individual freedom does create an expectation and and stokes a desire of I should be able to get whatever I want whenever I want it. And it's that expectation that I and that drives the some of the innovations that we see are just because people think that there could be a better way of doing something. And and I think that that spirit is one of the is one of the differences. I do I do wish in the US that we would adopt a mentality to say that instead of claiming all the time that we are the best country in the world, saying I want to continue to widen my lead, right? And saying there's got to be ways we can improve upon it, which I think based on everything I've read, I mean, I'm no expert in American history, was the intent of the founders was the like that this is a continued work in progress and we're going to continue to make it better. I think we need to remind ourselves of that at every turn. But I will tell you Jess, I'm going to reach over here. You can't you can take the Canadian out of Canada, but you cannot take <laughs> you cannot take uh the Canadian. Okay. Yeah, I, exactly. I will take a little bit of exception with your hat though because I, I lived in a, Edmonton exactly, during you're the Northern years. Yes, exactly. I, I lived there 86 to 90. And those are great years to live in Edmonton, by the yes, way. Yes, I am a I am a long suffering Maple Leafs fan, and I do remember the <laughs> I do remember the 1993 series with the Leafs in L.A. Uh, and Gretzky did beat us too. But uh, like I said, <laughs> a, a long suffering hockey fan. So you know, it's funny. I feel like I feel like Canadians have a higher priority on fun. 
Like it's, there's a lot more laughter. My wife, my wife grew up in LA and when we were running our fund in Calgary, you know, she, she spent a lot of time in Canada with Canadians for five years. Right. And she loved how like being funny is like a prerequisite. Like it's part of every conversation. It's, it's a higher priority. Right. I think, I don't know if you agree. I, I, I don't, I never, I hadn't thought about that. I have to think about, it. I think it might be I think we're Canadians typically are people experience us as more self-deprecating, more humble, less willing to beat our to beat our chest unless it's about hockey, especially <laughs> around the Olympics. But like like I think we're less we're more humble and maybe it's that self-deprecation that leads us to just have not take ourselves too seriously and therefore enjoy our, enjoy ourselves. I I'd, I'd have to th- and maybe it's just the long winters we have to find we have to find uh, an outlet for that. So, well, you know what's funny is sometimes. When, so I was just back home for a week, and uh, first time I had the kids back since COVID to go see cousins and friends and stuff. And one thing I do think, like when I'm back with my Canadian family members who've been watching too much of like the most liberal of Canadian news and like their filter on America, right? I think sometimes, I think sometimes what gets seen a lot as arrogance from America or from Americans. It gets misinterpreted. It gets changed a little bit because there certainly is arrogance. There's arrogance from every country. And, and, but for me, I think some of it is like there can be more of an ingrained complacency of like, well, that's just what it is. The government said so. Where in the U, I do feel like there's a little bit more, like there's something in the water of like, oh, we could make that better. Oh, we don't yeah. have to, we don't have to stand for that. We could make that better. And that can get interpreted at, that can get interpreted as arrogance when it, when it isn't actually. It's just a, we've there's so many people around us that have done something drastic that we feel like well maybe we could do that too and it's kind of exciting to be around i feel like i look i agree i wish that all education systems would start to teach the following principle which is there is more than one right answer to a problem and if you taught that then you have that relentless pursuit of something better ingrained in ingrained in cultures and instead instead of saying like, well, we've got the right answer, it's working, and that sort of leads to complacency, I think that if we started teaching that, I think there's something about, I think you're right, there is something about pursuit of happiness, liberty that 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 drives that relentless that relentless pursuit perhaps a bit. I do think there's some good examples of of Canadian innovation from time to time. We were we were having that conversation that, there is a there seems to be a disproportionate number of comedians that come out of that come out of out of Canada. So I think that there there's some there's something to it. I do wish though, and I think this for most societies now, we could have a debate that was more productive about how to make things better and agree mm. that we want we all want things to be better than they might be and then have a much more productive dialogue about how to make them better, because I think that that would serve us really, really well in listening. I, I do feel like the we're just not hearing and we're not listening enough to each other. And there's there's ways that we can make society better by if we would just listen and, and be more open. Yeah. You know, another question I have, you know, from your essentially decades now in, in uh, the professional services world, I'm interested in observations you've made about about innovation, about provoking something new of, you know, think about examples maybe from your career of companies that really were able to scale. They were really able to either invent an industry or or just have like 
not have incremental improvements, but have wildly drastic improvements. I'm wondering if you have any stories or any principles from from your career of you know seeing that in the front seat. Yeah, and look, I, I'll try to avoid the names. The st- the st- <laughs> well, no, not not just names, but I'll, I'll give you a I'll give you a couple of specific examples. But I'll try to avoid the ones that tend to be dissatisfying to listeners. Like if I tell you that Amazon is great at innovation and they embody a lot of the principles, everyone's going to go, okay, yeah, okay, Amazon, thanks for that. But they they do because they have a relentless pursuit of delighting the customer and they put the customer at the center of everything they do. And they think, how could we make that customer's life a little bit better and take out friction at every turn? And that, and they're willing to discard all the stuff that they've done and think about how many times they're, they're not, they're not a new company anymore. They've been around for a quarter century and they've reinvented themselves multiple times. So with, look, I realize that to a lot of listeners that no one wants to hear that the tech giants are great at innovation. I do think one of the great examples of someone who has driven a uh, turnaround of a longstanding company through innovation is Chip Berg at Levi's. So when Chip Berg went to Levi's, I think it's now seven, maybe eight years, Levi's was in a long standing downward spiral. Their sales had declined dramatically. Their brand didn't have the same cachet as it as it once had. And, you know, they were getting they they were having margin degradation. They were getting they they were getting the retailers didn't value their brands and Chip from an entirely different world. So Chip came from the world of consumer products, and I knew Chip when he went over and he said to me, "Everyone's aghast at the fact that we're bringing in this this person who was running, you know, at the time running Gillette for Procter and Gamble to go run this apparel company and this fashion company." And everyone's like, "He doesn't know anything about apparel. He doesn't know anything about fashion." And I remember response at the time, he did an entire survey. He had a binder in his house of the all the survey results of like, tell me what's working, tell me what's not working. And he was reading through it in detail. And when someone said, you're not an apparel expert, his response back was, make me an apparel expert. But what he took the first six months to do was ask a bunch of really inconvenient and what everyone else might've thought of as ignorant questions but just basic stuff like, so tell me, why does it take us 18 months to make a pair of jeans in China, ship them to the United States where we sell them for less than we could sell them if we left them in China in the first place, where Levi's had a, ter- a, a terrific brand name at the time of his coming in. And since that time, Chip's really done a number of great things at Levi's. He's taken a new interest in their in their stores and said the retail store has to be an important part of our value proposition because we've got to own the brand. We can create an experience there. They've gotten into wearable tech and he's created a whole purpose-driven organization. He came out with a very scathing letter on guns in their stores. And so he's organized around a bunch of ways. And that company has gone through not only just a renaissance, they, they IPO'd. And so I, I think that's a, a great example of the value and the principle of bringing a beginner's mind. I think that we all get steeped in our own stuff if we've been sitting in it too long. So you've got to inject some diversity, some cognitive diversity into your organization. And certainly, I think the Chip and Levi story is a great example of doing that to the benefit of the organization. It's interesting, those simple questions that could seem ignorant, right? 
And they get to like childlike simplicity that a lot of smart people haven't asked themselves recently, right? Yeah. I love it when my seven year I've got a seven year old and I love it when she asks me why, why, why? And I was like, well, that's a great question. That's a terrific, like they are, they are, it is such a blessing. Whenever you have a new person on your team, you got to give them. So I have two things I do with new people and with people who are leaving. With new people, I say, I'm going to tell you every time I get into a meeting with you, ask anything you think is a dumb question, blurt it out because we may just not, we may just be missing it. And you're only going to be blind to that for like three, six months. So ask every question. And then when someone leaves my team, I always say your last assignment is to write me a letter and tell me everything that you didn't tell me while I was technically your boss because you didn't think that either I could handle or you didn't think that it was politically ap- appropriate. Because And it's, it's amazing the kind of input and feedback you get. And so you just got to know when you're in those magic moments where you might get some insight and you got to be able to take advantage of it. Yeah, that's great. You know, another strategy question I have for you is, you know, at our at Greystoke Advisors, we've done, we have a lot of like, we do some executive coaching, but a lot of CEO strategy advisor kind of stuff, right? And I thought, and I used to do a lot of that, but like, I'm too busy with the investment fund now. And like, I'll probably always do some of that as a hobby, right? But I'm, I'm working on the idea of a book right now of like, basically like thousands of hours over the last 10 years of doing this. What could like, how could CEOs just do this for each other? Like, don't pay people like me hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour, right? Like, what about peer coaching, right? And like, my thought is just like, teaching my whole system, go through like the, the book list of book lists of the things that come up year after year after year. And you've advised CEOs, you advise your CEO. I'm interested in any principles when you, if you were training CEOs on how to be a good, you know, peer strategy advisor for another CEO at a similar size organization to them, what's one of the principles that you would teach? That's a terrific question, Jess. I love that question. And I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. It's a great business to get into, to be the convener of the CEO peer group. We do some of that. I think that what you're describing is, ter- is, is a terrific concept. I would, I think it's interesting. I think CEO, the CEO position is such a lonely position, right? If you think everyone who comes to speak to you has some agenda that they're working and the value of having a listening ear is so good. I, I would say the one thing that they would probably need to turn off to be a great advisor from running an organization is turn off the desire to always have an answer to something. And because I think CEOs are always put on the spot to have a perspective, to have the answer. They feel a lot of pressure to do that. Some CEOs do a good job of saying, I'll think about it. But oftentimes they're, they're motivated to have an answer in the moment. I think to be a great advisor to a CEO, you have to be willing to focus more on the questions and the process for that other person to go through. And so you kind of don't resist the temptation to drive to an outcome and let the other let the other see wrestle with stuff because it's about them. And, and that's, I think, the difference between being uh, an advisor and a wayfinder than it is to be the decision maker. And so I think they'd have to turn off that tendency to want to get to the answer quick to make sure that that other person goes through the necessary processes. That's such a good point. That's I, I will say sometimes 
some CEOs have had us come in, hey, can you teach all of our, you know, our senior people how to like take their boss hat off for an hour a week in during their one-on-ones and like just like just be an advisor to their staff instead of being a boss to their staff. And like we tell them, like we teach them stuff from the from Quantico for one of our advisors was uh, FBI SWAT for a dozen years, then FBI counter intel for a dozen years, and then went back and taught at the at Quantico. And when they teach these guys for intelligence operations, they tell them like, you need to talk 30% or less of the conversation. And like, you have to keep track mentally. And like, if you have, if you realize like, ooh, I'm on track to talk for more than 30% of this conversation while I'm trying to recruit the source, like, I have to, I have to do something about it. Like, what can I do now? So like, it gets drastic. Like, you have to start asking like really open-ended questions. So that by the end of this, they've talked 70% of the time or whatever, right? For sure, the hardest thing to do, the more senior the person, the harder that skill set. They hear about it, they think it's gonna be so easy, and then they practice it and they come back and they complain about that one. So this idea of like, you really do, you really do need to figure out how are you going to talk for 30% or less of the time, the more senior the executive, the harder that has been for them. Yeah, abs- it's, it's, it's really interesting you say that because there's a theory that I was lucky enough to be taught along early in my career called productive interactions, which was invented by a fellow named Chris Argerus, who's since passed at at Harvard Business School, and he worked with us at at Monitor Group. The what he would do is literally have people score conversations. And so they would say, like, oh, you spoke here and you made a initiated a move. And you spoke here and you initiated a correction to that move. Like, so you objected and you made an observation or you asked a question. And so what he was trying to figure out was in any conversation, who was talking and what was the balance of advocacy and inquiry in that conversation? What he found was that great productive conversations have a a, a nice balance of someone advocating for something because that's important and someone asking questions. And the tip that comes out of that practice is if you said to yourself before you're going into any conversation, I have something important to say, but I might be missing something, it really does create that great balance because it says, I'm here, I've got a role to play in this conversation. I'm not just going to sit back and not say anything. But the I might be missing something means that it's really important for me to try to understand what's going on in the head of the other people that I'm in this group with, because I, if I miss something, I want to understand what they might be seeing that I'm not. And it's that curiosity about the experiences of others that actually helps drive us to better to better outcomes, more innovative outcomes, I think. So Yeah, no kidding. Well, I, I've got to thank you. I feel like you gave me a business idea of like, if I get this book done, I also need to create like a uh, CEO peer dating website. So like I need to create like a matching service. And I bet there's a lot of folks who would like to talk to a CEO who's not in their friend group so they could feel like stuff's going to be 100% confidential. You know, like that'd be a great service to do for people. It would be. It would be. It's a okay, great idea. Thanks for the idea. We're going to have to give you credit. <laughs> well, I think I think uh, I actually think you came up with the idea yourself, Jess. So just we could we, that's a it's a terrific. Well, my idea. thought was send the book out and then tell them how to find someone. But we should just do it ourselves. No, we should, we just should say, build a platform. If you like the book, if you like the book, come to us and like if you don't already have a fellow CEO at a similar level you want to do this with, or if in addition to your friend you want to do this with, you want to do this with someone who's like 
on the other side of the country where it's going to be completely anonymous, let us know and you know we'll play we'll play what's what's like the Yiddish matchmaker. What are those women called? Oh my goodness. Anyways, we're gonna be we're gonna be one of those for CEOs. <laughs> Listen, this has been great. I'm hoping everybody is going to Amazon to get their own copy of Provoke. You get interviewed a lot. What's something that people don't ask you enough? This will be our, maybe our closer here. What's something that you'd like to talk about more that not enough people ask you or that's just a soapbox for you? I, look, I, I, the question that I ask everyone that I wish people asked of each other more, not necessarily of me, because I, I don't have like an amazing answer for it, but it's like, what do you do for fun? That's the, uh, that's the question that I, I ask folks that I'm meeting for the first time. I ask everyone I interview that question because it just, it humanizes us. I, I, I we used to have this notion. I think the pandemic has, I, I think, taught us that it's really hard to separate our personal and our private our private lives. And I know that some people like to do that and put up these artificial barriers, but I think we all want to be treated like human beings and just understanding what people do for fun. So what do I do for fun? I try to keep myself fit. I I hang out with my daughter. I love reading with my daughter. I Before the pandemic, I loved going to restaurants. After the pandemic, I will enjoy that again. We actually had an, a small investment in a restaurant a long time ago that was really fun to have in New York City. And I just love going to sit at a bar with my wife and talking at the end of the day. That's that's kind of what I love to do for fun. That's a great answer. Listen, thanks again for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jess. This was super fun. I appreciate it. I do podcasts for fun. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, bye everyone.